This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. When you look good, you feel good. When you feel good, you are confident. When you are confident, the world is yours. With that philosophy, my guest is truly living her best life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my guest is an award-winning fashion stylist for both men and women, a brand image strategist, and author of Secrets of a Well-Dressed Brand. Toy Sweeney, welcome to my podcast. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here with you today. Listen, I need to adopt your voice. Can I have your radio voice for a day? (laughs) As long as I can get your wardrobe. How's that sound? (laughs) That sounds perfect. You believe that a person's wardrobe is a business strategy and that a person needs to dress their message. What do you mean by that? The wardrobe as a business strategy really is about controlling the narrative and just being more intentional about it. And you think about, um, let's say, movies and how they use wardrobes. It makes sense that if you're looking at a movie that's from the 1940s, you know, or the 30s, my favorite time, then you're not going to have characters, you know, that are dressed from the 70s. It doesn't make sense. So it's really about dressing the way that you want to be addressed. It's about alignment. It's about having your personality, your core values, your mission, your vision, and your image all aligned so that you are putting out into the world everything that you want people to feel and think and know about you in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm often telling my clients, whether it's one-on-one or even in workshops, that our attire communicates our intentions. And a lot of people don't think about it like that. Yes. And especially today, we are so past first impressions, honestly, right? It's not so much about making a great first impression. That's great. But if you're going to be intentional about it, it's about you making the right impression, which is a lot more impactful. Again, when I'm talking with people, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this pandemic this past year. We've seen a lot of wardrobe changes <laughs> and not always for the better. What is your perspective on the work from home attire? And do you believe a person's attire still matters in this virtual world? I think that it matters. But again, I think that we have to look at it from a perspective of what do you want to say? You know, what do you want people to think and feel about you? When you're on Zoom, when that camera comes on or whatever streaming platform you're on, your image, fashion, all of it is so emotional because instantly someone has an opinion about you, good, bad, or indifferent. So you can't say dressing up, dressing down, yoga pants, good or bad. Those days are kind of gone. And so I think that you have to really decide, okay, like you have to consider the environment you're in. Are you taking these calls because you're in a corporation. That's different than when you're an entrepreneur. And so when you are working for someone, you have to consider their dress code. You have to consider that you are an extension of and representation of their company. So you have to stand out yet fit in simultaneously. And so you have to take that Mm -hmm. into consideration. And so let's say if the dress code is that you can't wear spaghetti straps, then you're not going to show up on a Zoom call in a tank top and yoga pants right? (laughs) And I'm sure you've seen all kinds of things. I know I have. It's just really, it's kind of crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I think that, you know, just to complete the thought, I think that we're all top dressing. So we're, you know, we go into um, stores. I was witnessing a lot of blazers and, and full suits still on the racks, but the blouses were gone and the workout mm-hmm. attire were sold out. And so I think that that gives you uh, kind of an answer to where to where we are, that it really matters the color that you wear, because you're really now dressing for television. So the colors that you wear are important. The silhouettes that are going to be flattering to you are are important. And so that's kind of what my takeaway is for this kind of, you know, virtual society that we've been in for so long. I tell everybody, you're all TV stars now, whether you want to be or not, <laughs> you're all on TV. When you're working with a client, what is the most important question you ask of them? The most important question and the first question that I ask is, what do you want? a person to think and feel about you when you enter the room. Or when you're on Zoom, (laughs) right? Right. Curious, were you a fashionista as a child? Um, I have always loved fashion. I've never liked the word fashionista. Tell me why. (laughs) I don't like that word because I think that I always associate it with kind of like cheesy fashion. Leopard print with red, not the good quality, like gorgeous leopard print. It doesn't associate or... um, lends itself to my own personal style or brand. So I always chuckle when I hear that, when I hear that word, because it's funny to me. I've always loved fashion and it was my mom's fault because I grew up thinking, and I still do, that she was the most beautiful woman that I've ever seen in my life. I just wanted to grow up and be her. She was like 5'8 and just stunning. And I all, and I'm not, I'm 5'3. <laughs> but I just always like loved her sense of style. And so I've always had this love of fashion. And she would put me in these little fashion shows when I was like five or six years old. And Liz, I still remember the oohs and the ahs walking down the, uh, the runway of everyone saying how precious I was and how cute and the applause. And I just think I kind of learned to love that. And it, you know, triggered me in a good way to go, oh, it really matters like how you show up. <laughs> Let's take us back to your childhood. Yes. Because you grew up in the projects, and I know at the age of 14, you moved to Pennsylvania. And that was kind of a culture shock because you were in a nearly all-white community at that point in time. What do you remember about those experiences? Um, Well, it was a different experience. So I grew up in Georgia mostly. My mom was a single mom, so we moved around, you know, a little bit. Every couple of years, we moved. We moved to Pennsylvania and it was a majority Caucasian school. So it was a little bit of a of a culture shock for sure, just everything. But it was one of the first times that I was kind of seeing these African American students who were driving BMWs to school and they were in two parent homes and some of them talk like this and you know, where do you summer? You know, I'm like, what summer? <laughs> what is, <laughs> what is that about? You know, and just trying to fit in because I was definitely coming from a place, you know, it was the height of the crack epidemic and it wasn't uncommon in New Jersey where we lived in the projects for, to see crackheads jumping out of windows. It wasn't uncommon that just really horrible things were going on. And my mom saved my life because she's like, you will not be going to high school here. So we moved. But the other part of the culture shock was just being in a school where there wasn't that many black people. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a good experience. I had to have these friends that didn't look like me, didn't talk like me. And it wasn't all easy. Some of it was really rough. It was tough because I walked to school 
Um, I was not, you know, one of the ones that drove the BMW to school. And so we walked everywhere and it was not uncommon that, you know, these same kids that I went, the white kids that I went to school with would flash their high beams and call me the N-word at night and then would smile on my face the next day in school. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't like without its challenges and without its racism. But overall, I still talk to some of the students today, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. everybody is connected on Facebook these days. And I think that throughout my life, my challenges have always seemed to make me better and make me more empathetic. Wow. And your mom sounds like she was a very powerful influence in your life. What did you learn from her? The greatest gift that my mom gave me was resourcefulness because her favorite word was no. And (laughs) she did something that was really uncomfortable with me when I was growing up. She would always talk about her, her death. And it drove me crazy as a teenager. Like, I thought she was crazy. And I'm like, why are you always talking about, like, one day I'm not going to be here. What would you, well, mom, can I do this? Or can I borrow $20? It's Wednesday and I get paid on Friday. No, because what would you do if I wasn't here? One day I'm going to die. And one day I'm not going to be here. And I thought she, I was like, what is wrong with you? But when she passed, I was in my office one day and I was really still kind of really deep in my grief. And I was trying to figure out something in my business. I can't remember what it was. And it took me a little bit, but I figured it out. And I thought to myself, dang, girl, you are resourceful. And I thought, Mm. oh, my word, like my mom did not leave me money or jewelry or um, property or any of those things. But what she left me with, Liz, is so much more powerful so much more valuable is that she taught me to be resourceful. Mm -hmm. And that was really it. Yeah. You've mentioned two very key words as we've been talking today, resourcefulness and empathy. And you needed both of those. Certainly you had three near death experiences, age eight, age 16, and then in your thirties, what happened at age eight? Oh gosh. So when I was eight, I just really wanted to be Charlie's Angels. I wanted to be a cheerleader. And I wanted to be like whomever the person was that wrote those super funny commercials. I wanted to be that person. So I was like, I'm going to make pom poms one day because I really, again, I was like, I'm going to be a cheerleader. And so I grabbed the paper and I started to shred it out on the carpet. And I was, I would, you know, roll them up. And then I'd have the frayed edges to shake like, you know, pom poms, yay. And so I placed the, the straight pin in between my teeth, as I had seen my grandmother do so many times when she was hemming my uncle's pants, I felt something kind of like dribbling down my chin, like saliva or something. But whatever it was, I went in this huge inhale and this pin, I swallowed it. I just completely swallowed a straight pin. So I moseyed my little cute self <laughs> into the kitchen And all of my aunties, my grandmother had 12 children, seven of them are girls. So about three or four of them were sitting at the table. They're just sitting there, just chatting it up, having sister time. And I walk in and I lean up against the door frame and I find a moment to interject in the conversation. And I say, "Um, what would um, happen if you swallowed a straight pen? And they were just like, looked at me for a minute and then they started back talking. And one who knows me well was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something's wrong like, here I know, I know toy I know toy did you swallow a straight pen and I was like yes and you would have thought they were flying around the house as, as they should have been so we get uh. to the hospital and the x-ray 
uh, reveals that it's an inch away from my heart. So now we're all really worried because that could have caused a significant amount of damage. Luckily for me, it passed through and I was unharmed. But, you know, it certainly was a situation where I could have and probably should have died. But therefore, I go by the grace of God. He still had work for me to do. I was like, okay. So then (laughs) (laughs) when I fast forward to high school, and as I said, we now we're in Pennsylvania because I'm about 16 and we were living in in an apartment, uh, my mom and I. But the kids who lived across the street from us got a school bus and we were directly across the street. But because we were in apartments, um, we didn't get to get a school bus. So I had to walk to school. I thought that that was ridiculous. And I'm not that much of a rule. Fo- I'm a rule follower with some things that when I kind of think something is ridiculous, you know, like I'm not a rule follower at all, I would just walk up and wait with those kids <laughs> to catch the bus. So one day this elderly woman decided that she was going to blow a stop sign. And as I was crossing the street to get on the bus, she hit me. Oh. She kept going. Of course, of course she did. I slid across the street on the right side of my face and my entire body. And when I looked up, I was under the school bus. All I could see was this huge black tire just rolling towards me. I thought for sure, for sure I was dead. I was like, this is the day that I'm going to die. And it didn't crush me. And so I just... I was alive, obviously. I was like, okay. So I get up and remember, remember, I was 16 and I can feel my face swelling and I look around and I say to my friends, I am having a really, really bad day. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So I'm going to go home. I go to the hospital and I had a fractured pelvis. Thank God that was all I had because obviously, you know, being crushed by a big yellow school bus was not something that I couldn't imagine that I would have survived. But yet again, God had more work for me to do. So I lived and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm having a bad day. What? (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Let's fast forward now. In your 30s, you and your husband finally get pregnant through IVF. Yes. And so we are super excited. We're about six months in. I go to bed that night, just normal. I feel my son Miles like swimming around in my belly. Life is good. And a few hours later, I wake up and I'm, I'm sweating. I'm clammy. Everything in the room is completely orange, which I now know is a sign of internal bleeding, which I did not know that before. Oh, wow. I started to vomit. And so I passed out. My husband called 911. We arrive at the hospital and they had made me aware that my uterus erupted and that our son Miles had passed away. I had to be rushed into emergency surgery because he was already gone. And so now the toxins and the bleeding of everything, if we would have waited a second longer, I would have, I would have died. So now we had to go into emergency surgery. She had to repair my uterus. She had to remove miles. She had to start two blood transfusions because I started bleeding out on the table. After surgery, I had an infection in my uterus. I had pneumonia. And then I had to mentally try to process the fact that I could not have children anymore. There was no getting pregnant again. This was not a miscarriage. It was so much more than a miscarriage. And now I also have to plan a funeral. (sighs) 
it was very, very difficult. It was one of the most difficult moments of my life. We were very, very lucky and very blessed that my sister-in-law at age 53 uh, raised her hand and decided that she would be my surrogate. Amazing. <laughs> like she's just, she's an angel. Oh. And you know, like, who does that for anyone without wanting anything without like no chart? Like she's like, it's my pleasure to do it. And so today I am the, I am Tucker's mom. We have, <laughs> yes, you're a proud mama. <laughs> we have a beautiful, gorgeous little boy named Tucker, who is just, you know, the light of my world. He is creative and funny and mm. just the greatest, the greatest gift from God and miracle that we couldn't even like wrap our heads around. He's awesome. Well, not only are you a happy mom, you're lucky to be alive, and you've had some really interesting career paths along the way. You've held a number of jobs in the retail industry. The longest tenure was as the style director at QVC for 16 years. What is it about telling the story of someone's brand through fashion that you love so much? I think that when you look back over my life, you can, you can see there were so many things that were just out of my control. And I think that when we think of words mm -hmm. like control and we think of words like power, they have a negative connotation. I choose to redefine those words because I don't think that they're negative at all, at least not where I'm concerned. And I've just loved mm -hmm. fashion because I, you know, I fell in love with it while I was, while we lived in the projects and I would spend my Saturday afternoons watching AMC and Turner classic movies and just in love with the way that they would use wardrobe to tell a story. So when I worked at QVC, I realized that by using the power of the psychology of color, plus using the models and the show hosts, their personalities, and bringing that all into alignment, the question that I had was, does this affect the bottom line of the business? It was kind of like my, my test dummy or my factory, my testing floor, to see if it would impact the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I realized that it did. And so each week where the portion of it that I was controlling, in addition to the show host, because she was amazing and she still is, I was in charge of just the online portion and I was tripling what they were paying me. So I was outworking my work. <laughs> so I was like, man, I'm, I'm <laughs> on to something here. That was really kind of like the Hulk juice that made me think like, man, I could really, I'm really on to something here with this kind of wardrobe as like a selling strategy or a personal brand. And that's how the well-dressed brand, uh, my company today was born, was just from being in that lab and seeing if that, if it impacts it. But I love the fact that you get to, we get to control our narrative just simply by the way we choose to mm -hmm. get dressed every day. Well, as an entrepreneur and a speaker, and you have your own show, Well-Dressed Brand TV and Podcast on Facebook, and that's also the title of your book, Secrets of a Well-Dressed Brand. What is your definition of success toy, and how does that translate into living your best life? My definition of success is just getting up every single day out of bed, happy and unhinged, mm. just having the freedom to create the life that you want. I think that you have to be afraid of mediocrity. You can't get sucked back into the pool of what others think and feel that you should do. You have to be self-aware and you have to serve yourself and others. And that's my definition of success. It's really about you creating your own narrative and being unhinged to do that. Awesome. 
If you would like to learn more about Toy or work with her on creating your brand and image, just go to toysweeney.com. That's T-O-I-S-W-E-E-N-E-Y.com. And you can also find a link to her book on this episode's show notes. Toy, thank you for reminding all of us that looking good does connect us to being our best confident selves. Liz, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy being able to spend this time with you today and your listeners. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You are so welcome. And thanks to all of you for listening. I invite you to subscribe and download all of my episodes. Each guest story offers up a way for each of us to find new ways of living our best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.